I almost hesitate to speak after that. Um, but so the, uh, the Bachelor and The Bachelorette are two of the biggest reality TV dating shows um, that there are. And in, if that's not a regular part of your kind of weekly TV viewing habits, as it is for me, I'll go ahead and refresh you and kind of explain to you how this show works. Um, you basically have one person, right, either the bachelor or the bachelorette, and they have 30 people who are competing or really dating them at the same time, and the prize is at the end, somebody gets to propose to them, and they may or may not get married down the road. Most of the time, it doesn't work out. But... They, one of the things that's funny about the show is dramatically at the end of every episode or sometimes in the middle, they will kind of have their what they call a rose ceremony. And this is when some of the people get broken up with and sent home. And so very dramatically, the bachelor or bachelorette will have all these roses and they'll call names down one at a time and kind of give them the rose to symbolize, okay, you get to stay here. And so during the rest of the episodes, you'll see these people kind of competing with one another to try and earn this row so that they can stay on another week and maybe hopefully make it to the end. And so it's interesting to see kind of how they do this. And sometimes you'll see them be strategic and they'll try and, you know, share their sob story or some reasons why they think they're so much better than everyone else. Or some will try and start drama and talk how bad everyone else is. But the thrust of it is at the end of the day, all they're trying to do is they're trying to stay there and get another rose. You may wonder what in the world this has to do with Proverbs 9, but this was on my mind as I read this chapter this week. <laughs> Not just because I was watching The Bachelor, but because in this passage, what you really have is you actually have two women who are competing for your attention. What we see in this passage is we have the Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly both standing there doing similar things, inviting all of us to choose them or to give them the rose, if you would forgive my metaphor. And so that's what we're going to do, is we're going to look this morning at the tale of two women in Proverbs 9, as we kind of finish our series in the book of Proverbs. So if you would, um, turn with me there. We're just going to go through um, the whole chapter and see what both of these women um, have to say. So stand with me, if you are able, um, for the reading of God's Word. Now, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts, she has mixed her wine, and she has also set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of my wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. But reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat in the highest places on town, calling to those who pass by, who are going on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. 
Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would illuminate your word to us. Lord, that you would prepare our hearts, um, that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, would we hear what, and understand what your word has to say to us this morning? Would we heed the invitation that we were supposed to? And would we be more like your son, Jesus? Pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So first, we're going to go ahead and just take a look at these two women. That's really where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. So the first point in your notes, if you're taking them in your bulletin, is that wisdom and folly daily invite us to follow them. Wisdom and folly daily invite us to follow them. Every single day, in almost every single moment, we kind of have this invitation before us and this choice before us on who are we going to follow and what are we going to listen to. And Proverbs paints a picture in this chapter of two women standing outside of their homes, standing in high places, calling out, sending out an invitation to us. And if you notice, if you've noticed kind of just in our study, but if you've been reading through the book of Proverbs this month, you may notice that Proverbs uses women a lot, especially as the way Proverbs talks about wisdom. Wisdom is always, in almost every single instance in this book, personified as a woman. Not just in this chapter, but throughout the book. And we see this right away here in verse 1 where it says, Wisdom has built her house. And you see folly as well is described as a woman. Verse 13, the woman folly is loud. And she, and so there's lots of she and her. And it paints this picture of these two women being personified. And you'll notice, really, I, I've noticed this more. I knew this about wisdom, but I think folly is also personified as a woman kind of throughout the entire book of Proverbs. As you read it over and over, you will just see these two images as you have wisdom and folly kind of just placed in as these images of people so that you can see them. And really chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8 describe them all as well, but especially 5, 6, and 7 will describe um, folly or the seductress in this way. And so what I want to do is I want to take some time this morning and just compare these two women because it describes them... Um, Similarly, and so this is uncharacteristic for me normally, as you can see, um, we've got it up there, but I went ahead and made a chart. Um, I did this for myself, and then Bree said, well, maybe that'd be a good idea to share it. So maybe it is or not helpful to you, but we're just going to kind of walk through this and kind of putting them together. I want you to see this so you can see how these women are similar and also how they are contrasted. And I could, it wasn't that hard for me to fill up this chart, so I think it's pretty obvious the author wants us to catch this. Um, you can take a picture of this. I also, I can send it out to you as well. I didn't put it in your notes because that would have been a lot of writing. Um, but, so the first obvious comparison that we've already kind of covered is both of these, wisdom and folly, are personified by women, right? You see both of them just right away. But they're also shown as having homes. So Lady Wisdom, verse 1, wisdom has built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. This is an impressive woman, okay? She didn't just go buy a house. She's made her own home. Okay, that is much better than me. I don't, I'm not very handy. I don't do stuff around the house. When there was a pipe that was dripping and our ceiling was kind of drooping and there's water coming from it. And Bree said, hey, I think that looks like you should go up in the attic. And I was like, ah, you know what? We just wait till tomorrow. Let's see if it's still there. Maybe it'll just go away on its own. Um, it didn't. I went up there eventually. Um, but that's me. That is not wisdom. Wisdom builds her own house. And she is hewing these pillars, okay? That means she's like going down to the quarry and she is chipping away some big impressive pillars to go set outside her house. She's tough. 
Okay, Lady Folly is just kind of personified. She's just sitting outside her house. Verse 14, she just sits at the door of her house. Not quite as active. Not quite as tough. Not quite as getting around. We also see that they both have food or they're both preparing a meal. Verse 2, Lady Wisdom, she has slaughtered her beast and mixed her wine and set her table. Cindy, you shared the other day, you, you, know, you slaughtered the fatted calf. Okay, that takes work. And it's not easy. It's not just going down to Walmart and picking up some meat so you can throw it on the grill. That is a big process. And it's also extravagant. So she is killing the cattle. She is preparing a big meal and a feast for those who would come to her home. It's expensive. And it's not just meat. It's also with wine. And she has mixed her wine in verse 2 and set the table. So she is preparing her own wine for her visitors. She's pulling out all the stops. She's being a good hostess, putting out all of this work. Now, Lady Folly doesn't quite exactly have the same offering of a fatted calf and some wonderful wine. Verse 17, what does Lady Folly have? Well, stolen water, sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Okay, so she doesn't have wine, but she's got water. And not her own water, she stole this water. It seems... Kind of silly, especially in our day, to imagine somebody stealing water. Like, wow, come over to my house. I have water for you. Like, well, I can get water anywhere, but okay. And no, so her big thing is, well, it just tastes so good when you steal it. That's, that's, that's why my stuff is the best. But I think the image, too, this paints is that this bread is not just even good bread. I think I almost picture stale bread. Bad bread, used bread, especially in comparison to, well, I could go over here and I could have a wonderful feast with meat and steak and wine, or I could go over there and maybe get a glass of water that's probably warm and some bread that's been sitting out a while. And at Lady Folly's house, the table is not set over there. Okay, wisdom has set the table. It's got all of the, the trappings, a nice tablecloth, the silverware, the fine china is out. But at Lady Folly's house, we got to eat in secret. Okay, stay away from the windows. Come in the back room in my closet. That's where we're going to eat this, this bread and drink our water. Lady Wisdom shown to have followers in verse 3. She sent out her young women to call from the highest places in town. So Wisdom has enough of a reputation that she has other people who speak for her. She doesn't just have to go do this herself. There are other followers that come. It's usually a good thing if you have people who follow you. It means at least sometimes you're worth following in some way. Okay, Lady Folly doesn't have any followers. Not at all. She's the only one who calls out for herself. Well, why doesn't she have any followers? Why does she speak out by herself in verse 15? Well, all her followers are dead. Verse 18, the dead are there and her guests. Anyone who's come into her house, who's come under Folly's influence, um, has not made it. This is why Folly doesn't have any followers. We see they do something similar as well, where they're both calling out from the highest places in town. Verse 3, the young women call out from the highest places in town. Verse 14, and Folly takes a seat at the highest places in the town. So it's giving us a picture. They're both sending this invitation out far and wide. To anyone who would come, anyone who would see it. They're getting up in a place not just of where it would be seen kind of of honor, just where people can see them. Okay, that's why I'm I'm up on a stage because I'm short, so you need to see me. i got to be up a little higher, but it's also so my voice can go out, right? So more people can hear what's being said. 
remember visiting New York City and kind of seeing this, if you, especially if you go um, to the more touristy places like Times Square, you'll see lots of people trying to get your attention, trying to sell you things, trying to give you stuff. I remember seeing people who brought their own boxes or crates so they could stand up, be on a high place, so that they could, their voice could go out and more people could hear what they were inviting them to. So this is what we see wisdom and folly doing. And we also see they're inviting the same people. They're, they're inviting the same people in verse 4. And the, the invitation really is word for word the same. Verse 4, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says. So that's wisdom. Well, what is folly doing? Verse 16, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says. Both those verses are exactly the same. Okay, that's not laziness on God's part. That's trying to catch our attention even more in case you've missed a lot of the other things. That, oh, they're doing the same thing. They are both inviting us to follow them. And their words are similar. Lady Wisdom, she's inviting us to come and eat of the bread and wine and enjoy the feast. But Lady Folly is inviting us for their stolen bread and stolen water. And now their invitations are similar, but it's important to notice where they diverge. Where they're different. Because where they're different is significance. They're both offering meals, but one of them, Lady Folly, is inviting us to sin. That's why he's saying right away, hey, come and partake of this stolen food. Come and have a taste of how good it is to sin. Come and taste how wonderful it is to not care about God's law and to just do whatever you want and take and just fill your heart with greed. Come see that. Come sin and see how wonderful it is. It's even better than not sinning. That's what Lady Folly invites us to. But yet, Lady Wisdom, what does she invite us to do? She invites us to repent. Verse 6, leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. So she invites us to leave the way of sin. It is a call and an invitation to repentance and to the grace of Jesus. Those are two very different invitations, aren't they? On one hand, we have an invitation to continue in the way of folly and sin. And the other, we have an invitation to follow in the way of Jesus and repentance. And it's significant to notice that wisdom calls for repentance. Because the way of righteousness... The way of Jesus, the way of the Bible, God calls us to repentance. And this is a lost, lost art today. And a lost art as much as something that doesn't happen as often. There's a lot of preaching, there's a lot of books, there's a lot of Christian things that don't focus on repentance or that don't have repentance. Might be a lot of, hey, isn't Jesus wonderful? Look how good he makes me feel and how awesome it is. Maybe you could just do it too if you want. No pressure though. You know, you do you, but I'm going to do me. And Jesus is pretty cool. I think you should go this way. That's uh, not exactly calling people to repentance. But wisdom calls us to repentance. Wisdom asks us to leave our simple ways. Walk away from your sinful life and come and see how good it is to follow Jesus. Walk in the way of insight. And then if you go, well, what is the way of insight in verse 6? Well, go to verse 10. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've talked about that a couple weeks ago. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So what is the way of insight? The way of insight is the way of God. It is walking in Him. 
And back to these women, you see too that these houses are not just on different streets, not just in different places, but they lead to vastly different outcomes for those who follow them. If you follow Lady Wisdom, what you see is you, you stop being simple and now you become someone with insight or someone who is filled with God. Verse 6, leave your simple ways and live. There is life in following after wisdom. And not just life here, not just good life, but also eternal life to be had, which is much more significant. If you want to die, you can go to Lady Folly's house. 18, he does not know that the dead are there and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Those who, folly, who follow after folly and sin are fooled and they don't realize that everyone who has already walked that path before is already dead. It's too late. They're like fools in a horror film who when they go, they're walking into the house that you know is creepy and it looks creepy and there's creepy music playing. They're saying, well, the door just opened. Maybe let's go inside. Let's see what happens. And you know as the viewer that in that basement and in those walls and all throughout that yard, there's all the other bodies of the people who are dumb enough to go inside that house. That's what the house of sin and folly is. Everyone who thinks, ah, you know, I think this is a good idea. Maybe I'll just have a taste. Leads to death. Sure, she says, you know, my stolen water is sweet and the bread eaten in secret, it's pleasant and it tastes really good. You know, it might taste really good, but it is poison. It is poison that kills the soul and leads to death. And not just death here, but eternal death. For guests in the depths of Sheol, Sheol isn't always just used to mean the grave. It can also mean eternal death. The place from which there is no escape. As you see, the importance of which woman you are going to follow is eternally significant. And daily, both of these women are inviting us to follow them. Now, in case it's not already incredibly obvious which woman's house you should go into, or which invitation you should accept, I want to also go back and then show how Lady Wisdom really is similar to Jesus. And some would even go so far to say that wisdom here is really a type of Jesus. Um, and one way to think about this may be helpful is how this passage really, right, it personifies wisdom and folly and shows them as two women you can picture and you kind of have a, an image in your mind. We could film it or even act it out and it wouldn't be that hard to do because it's so kind of straightforward. Gives us a metaphor so we can kind of get a human representation of what folly and wisdom look like. Well, in the person of Jesus, in the incarnation, when God came down and put on flesh. We don't just get a picture or a metaphor of what wisdom looks like. We get wisdom embodied in flesh. In the person of Jesus. And Jesus, like Lady Wisdom, has also prepared a mighty feast. Over and over, especially in eschatology, as you read about the coming of Jesus or you read about the last days when He will rule and reign, it describes a feast. And it describes particularly a wedding feast which are some of my favorite kinds, especially because they're free. If it's not your wedding, at least. That's a different story if it is. But at the end, it is a feast, and everyone is invited to come to the feast of Jesus. And Jesus, he even tells a parable of a man who was having a wedding feast and sent out the invitation far and wide to any who would come. And hey, everyone come. 
It's free. Come in. I've prepared it. I've, I've made the best wine. I've slaughtered all the cattle I've got. This is a feast. Come and get it. But not everybody comes. And just still today, the invitation of Jesus is far and wide to everyone, but not everybody heeds it and not everyone answers. Lady Wisdom also, she sets up a table, right? It, it even then mentions that she has bread and wine in verse 5. Come and eat of the bread and drink of the wine. Well, in another way too, Jesus also sets a table of bread and wine at the communion table. And the communion table is open for all believers to come and to feast, not because there's lots of bread or lots of wine, but because really we are feasting and remembering what Jesus has done. And Jesus, like wisdom, He calls out to the simple. It's kind of funny how both of these aren't just saying, hey, anyone who wants it, it's, hey, simple, simple people, dummies, turn in here, come here. Well, Jesus calls out the simple. His invitation goes out to the fools, like his disciples. Goes out to tax collectors, like Matthew. Goes out to hypocrites and sinners and the rejects and those on the outside of society and to the women no one wanted anything to do with. Jesus' invitation goes far and wide. And also, like Lady Wisdom, Jesus calls us to repent. He calls us to leave our sin behind and to walk in the way of Jesus. He offers life, and really He's the only way to eternal life. Like Wisdom said, leave your simple ways, repent and live. Well, the only way to gain true life is through Jesus and through His invitation. Ultimately, I think the invitation of wisdom here is foreshadowing the invitation of Jesus. And every single day that invitation is before all of us. Believer or non-believer, who will we follow? Not just wisdom or folly, but who will we follow? Will we follow Jesus or will we follow our sin? Will we follow Jesus or will we follow the world? Will we follow Jesus or will we follow what I want to do? That invitation is before us. And so the question is, whose invitation are you going to answer? Or whose invitation will you accept? That's a question every single one of us has to answer every day. You may notice in this passage, uh, right in between these two women, there's verses 7 through 12 are a little different. It may have been a, a little jarring the first time if you, you read it. It seems almost like an interruption. I don't think it is. I think it's intentional. I think the author and God wrote it this way to get our attention. I think he's doing something purposefully. You'll actually see this. The Gospels do this especially, but God's Word likes to do this, where he will sandwich things. So there will be two passages, two parables, two stories, or two things, like these two women, and they'll be separated. And then in between them, there will be something different. And it looks like it's just random, like the the gospel authors or God just wanted to put things kind of however he did. But then if you look at them all together, you'll see, oh wait, this is making the kind of sandwich that's making a point if I see them together. And so that I think is what's going on here. I think the way that this chapter is written is to center our attention on the choice between which of these women will we follow. Because so much of this is you in the 7 through 12, you have a scoffer and you have a wise man being contrasted. And what's being contrasted is, well, how are they going to respond to something? And one responds well and one does not. And really, I think it's how do they respond to an invitation. But the invitation doesn't come in the same way we might expect. 
Look at these kind of different invitations that they get. Verse 7, whoever corrects a scoffer and he who reproves a wicked man. Verse 8, don't reprove a scoffer. Reprove a wise man. Verse 9, give instruction to a wise man. Teach a righteous man. All of these are invitations. They're invitations for who will you follow? Will you follow wisdom or folly? You may not realize it, but when someone corrects you, which is what reprove means, when someone tells you that you're wrong, that is an invitation. It's an invitation to stop following after sin, to stop following after lady folly, and instead follow after Jesus. And there's two different kinds of responses to that invitation. It's either we can respond like the scoffer, we can respond like a wise and righteous person. And our response is, Ultimately, can be based on who we are. So the wise person, the Christian, the follower of Jesus responds by listening. Look how the wise man responds correctly. Verse 8, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instructions to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. So how should we respond to this invitation? Well, we respond by listening. We respond by loving being corrected. Does anyone love being corrected? Okay, I don't see anyone volunteering to just shoot their hand way up. Okay, This is not our natural response, is it? But when wisdom and when Jesus call out and say, hey, don't do that. Stop. You need to stop. You need to listen. Then we listen. And the wise respond by saying, oh, yes, you're right, Jesus. I should stop and listen. Okay, we were just having this conversation with Calvin this morning. As we have the, these songs we kind of sing from Daniel Tiger, and one of them, you know, is stop and listen to stay safe, which is, well, when I yell stop, you need to stop because it's serious and you stop and listen so you can stay safe. And well, this morning, as some of you may have seen, he was not stopping and was not listening. And so we had to go and have some time out and set him down as we do. Well, Calvin, why are you in time out? What are you supposed to do? And he's like, well, I didn't stop and listen. And then he just said, I don't want to stop and listen to say so. <laughs> well, son, this is not a surprise to me. But too, that is how we are, isn't it? We're, we might not say it, but it's like two-year-olds. When someone corrects us or when someone calls us to repentance or tells us what we're doing is wrong, we may as well just say, no, I don't want to repent. No, I don't want to follow Jesus. I want to do what I want to do. And stop telling me not to. That's how we respond. And that's what the scoffer does. Look up the scoffer or the fool responds in seven. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Don't reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. It's really, it's painting a, a picture of that kind of response. Of when you are corrected, your first response is anger. And it really gives us, a, or by yelling back, like, no! And abuse, and then cursing you out. Telling you how dumb you are. How could you even say such a thing? And it gives, I love the description at seven, that this person is really going to want to fight you. That you are going to incur injury. It's like if you're walking, you know, in the parking lot of a store, and someone parks over on the line, and they get out, and you say, hey, just once you know, you're, you're kind of over the line there, and they respond, and they just rip their shirt off, and put up their fists, and start swinging haymakers at you. You go, whoa, 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 that, that's kind of a, Extreme response. Well, yes, it is. But that's also, I think, how many of us respond internally in our hearts when we are corrected by someone. 
Why? Because we don't see correction as an invitation to follow Jesus. We see it as an attack on who we are. We see it as an insult. And so it makes us angry. Instead, what we hear is, we hear, wow, are, are you saying I'm a sinner? Are you saying that I'm, I'm not really good and righteous and awesome and that everything I do isn't perfect? That's how we tend to hear that. Now, some of you might respond with saying, well, you know, I, I can picture people like that. You know, I'm not going to name them, but I know someone who, if you correct them, they're, they're going to get really angry. They're going to yell at you. We just know. We don't, we don't tell them they're wrong about anything and try and hang out with them as little as possible. But that's not me. All right, that's not me, Pastor. That's somebody else. Well, my first response would be, if that's the first thing that you think, you're already proving that you're like the scoffer. Because you're responding not by loving correction, but by abuse or disagreeing. Right? Because the righteous person or the, the wise person responds to being corrected, being told, hey, I think you're wrong by saying, wow, I love being corrected. Thank you. You are inviting me to follow Jesus and to turn from my sins. What a wonderful thing. You know what? I probably am way more sinful than I think. I don't even know if you're right or not. I'm just going to assume that you are because I know that I'm not following Jesus as much as I should. That's how the righteous person responds. Okay, is that how you respond when you're told something's wrong? No, that's not, I don't think. That's not how I respond. Another way to find out is think about the last time that you were corrected about something. Okay, the last time somebody said that what you said hurt their feelings. Or that someone told you, hey, when you said that was pretty rude. I, I, I didn't like that. Maybe someone told you you got something wrong. Well, what rose up in your chest at that moment? Or the emotions or the feelings that came across you when someone said something like that. For, you know, we'll get really defensive. No, can't be. No, you must be wrong. I'm willing to bet that for many of us, our gut reaction is not immediately, wow, you know what, you could be right. Wow, thank you for inviting me to, to repent and to be more like Jesus. Our gut reaction is usually, no, 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 you're wrong. I've noticed that myself this week, right? I, I like to pride myself on how smart I am and how much I get things right. Okay, so I like to think that I'm really smart. Uh, but often I'm pretty dumb. And one of the small ways that my dumbness comes out is I just get words wrong all the time. Um, I, you know, I, I, the words just don't come out in my mouth the way I think that they are in my head or my thoughts that are really brilliant. Then when I'm trying to explain to Bree how brilliant that they are, this brilliant thought that I had, they don't really come out the same way. And so they, they're not wrong. And so I like to blame a lot of that on my hearing problems because my hearing's not great and I mumble a lot. And so, you know, I'm just so smart. I think so quick so my words can't quite catch up with my brain. You know, these are all the things that, that I do. But sometimes, honestly, I just, I just butcher words. And especially you've been here, you've I know that I have done it plenty of times in sermons, right? Where I'm just, I'm butchering words, I'm saying the wrong words, I'm mispronouncing words that I know how to pronounce. Why in the world did I say it that way? I don't know, but I did. But so what happens, here's how this, this can play out at home, or just in general. Maybe I'll make, a, I'll make a really bold statement about something important, or say something where you're like, did you mean that? Well, you, know, you said this. My response is not always, yes, you're, you're right, thank you. It's, well, well, you know what I meant. Why did you correct me? You clearly understood what I was trying to say, so how, how dare you? Why would you do this? Right, well, that's so dumb. It's such a minor thing. Like, Because almost every time I know I said it wrong, she knows I said it wrong, but I wish we could just ignore all the things that I do wrong and let's just pretend <laughs> that I'm getting everything right. Right, that's what we want to do. 
Or sometimes I can just double down to deny that I said it that way, and we can just get into an argument about that. Now, many of you can probably relate to that in, in your own life, but here's the reality. If we can't respond to Jesus, to respond to correction correctly in small instances that don't matter at all, how in the world do you expect that in the big instances, in the big sins, in the big moments, when the pressure is really on, that then suddenly you're going to respond with faith and respond correctly in a way that honors Jesus? Every single day we have thousands of these moments. Hopefully you're not being corrected thousands of times a day. Sometimes you are. But there are definitely moment after moment after moment in our lives where we have small chances and small invitations to, hey, do you want to be more like Jesus right now? Or do you just want to double down? You want to keep following Lady Folly? You want to keep following yourself? You want to keep thinking that you're awesome can do this without him? And how we respond in all of those small, minor moments is what really matters. But what we do is we tend so often to just focus on the big moments, to focus on the big things, right? Because we read, we read books or biographies or stories or watch movies about our heroes of the faith, and we're not, watching story, we're not watching it to see, hey, how do they respond when someone told them that you know, they missed a spot when they were cleaning? Okay, that's not exciting. We want to see, well, how do they respond when everyone in the room was telling them that they have to do this and they didn't? Those are the kind of things we like that inspire us, right? Because they're awesome. Well, you don't just get there by ignoring Jesus all day long in your life. Maybe, you know, I was just thinking of that because if you want to be like heroes like Lottie Moon or Charles Spurgeon, Elizabeth Elliot, and to have the kind of faith that they do, the confidence, or like the heroes in God's Word, like Peter and John and Elijah, if you want that, you've got to learn to respond to the small invitations of Jesus in your life. The small invitations are what really matter. And the small invitations are what make up 99% of our lives anyway. And if we can't honor Jesus in the small things, also why in the world do we think he would give us something big to honor him with? We've proven we can't be trusted in small ways. So part of my invitation to you is maybe the next time that you're corrected this week, maybe the next time you're corrected today, why don't you view it as an invitation to follow Jesus? As an invitation um, to repent. As an invitation to listen, to follow after Him and to be more like Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that every single correction you get is valid. There's probably plenty that aren't and may even be wrong. But we can still respond in ways that are trying to follow Jesus. Right? Even if we don't think it's right, which... If we're honest, all of us don't think any of them are right. So maybe we should start with, you know what? I wonder if maybe it's possible I sinned again. I know it's been a while. I haven't done that. For, but, you know, they, they could be right. This could have been one of the times that I have done that. I've been known from time to time every couple weeks to sin once and down again. Right? But that is how we respond when someone tells us that we're in sin. And so why don't you think about that? The next time today or the next time this week that somebody corrects you or you, the Holy Spirit convicts you himself, why don't you view that as an invitation to follow Jesus? And the most important invitation that we get is this one, to follow Jesus. And really the most important invitation we get as well is not just in these little moments, but it is in every moment of our life and in the invitation of the gospel to be followers of Jesus. 
This is an invitation that goes out to all of us, that goes out to the whole world. But the unfortunate reality, right, is that not everyone responds to Jesus' invitation. Not everyone is going to be at that great wedding feast when Jesus returns again. Not everyone is going to be in heaven when Jesus comes again. And it's not because of anything other than they have not responded. The invitation goes out, and they have not answered. Verse 12, all of us have to make this choice. Verse 12 can be a little obscure and a little weird, but I think this is part of what that verse is getting at. Verse 12, if you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you alone will bear it. I had to read that like 20 times before I could even understand what, it, what it's saying. What I think it is saying is that all of us have to decide, what am I going to do with this invitation to follow Jesus? Am I going to be wise? Am I going to put my faith in Him? Am I going to be a Christian? Or am I going to scoff? Or am I going to turn away from God? And that is a decision that only we get to make. And we have to make that by ourselves alone. Parents can't make it for us. Or we're born doesn't make it for us. Our spouse can't make it for us. Ultimately, all of us, when we die or when Jesus returns, we'll stand before God alone. No one else can answer for us. So it's up to all of us to decide, every single one of us, whose invitation will you answer? If you're in this room or listening later and you don't know Jesus, I want to join my voice with the Lord's and invite you, turn in here. Come and follow Jesus. Because He loves you. He died on the cross for you. He shed His blood to save you. And He has prepared a mighty feast and life everlasting for you. And He wants you to have it. I'd love to talk to you more about what that means. You can come grab me, talk to an elder if you have other questions. But Jesus is inviting you to follow Him. And would you? For those of us in this room who are believers, we still need to respond to the invitation of Jesus. Just because you responded when that wedding invitation came out the first time and you RSVP'd and said, yes, Jesus, sign me up. I want to follow you to the end. Okay, that's not it. You're not done. Now, every single day, you have another thousand chances to decide that, yes, still today, I want to follow Jesus. Still today, I'm going to choose to turn away from folly, to turn away from sin, and to follow Jesus. I'm going to choose to turn away from the world, to turn away from myself and all the things that I want to do. Instead, I'm going to follow Jesus. Every single day, in every single way, we are called and invited. Are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow sin, yourself, folly in the world? So who will you choose? Let's heed His Word. And let's follow the right person. Just kind of in summary of where we've been. Wisdom and folly daily invite us to follow them. Which is really Jesus and sin daily invite us to follow them in every moment. And the question is, who are you going to follow? One of them leads to death. And one of them leads to life everlasting. And every day and every moment, we get to decide which one we want to follow. Would you follow Jesus? Please follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your invitation. Um, Lord, that you would prepare a feast for us. 
Lord, that you would come and send your Son and die on the cross for us, for all of us, Lord, that you, for sinners, for hypocrites, for rejects, for people who do not deserve your love. You have showered it upon us. Lord, I ask for, for those who are here or watching later who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would heed your invitation. I pray that you would help them feel your deep love for them. I pray that you would stir up in them a, a desire to say yes to you. And Lord, I also pray for those of us who, who do know you, who love you, who call ourselves Christians because we want to follow you, Jesus. Lord, would you help us to daily respond to you and to your invitation to follow you. Lord, would we be a people who in our ordinary lives respond faithfully to your invitation to follow you. That anyone who could come and see us, Lord, would see someone who is trying to follow Jesus, no matter how often we fail. And would you give us the strength to do that? Because we can't even respond to you on our own. We need your help. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to sing and worship our Savior. Um, but here's our, our benediction. is from the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.